I met you in that free trade is the only good kind of economics class that we took at <laughs> Utah State. Oh, were we in that same class together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that was that the class that was like low key actually taught by John Stossel? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I actually yeah. I actually went on to take another class from that same professor my senior year and like like tried to talk to the business administration school about how terrible it was. I got nowhere, but he was such a bad professor. And you uh you have a econ undergrad degree, right? Yeah, so I studied economics and international studies at Utah State University. And then I went on to get a master's degree at the University of Chicago in Chinese history. That's what I thought, yeah. Um, so Chris and Josh, what do y'all think is better? Big companies donating to charities or paying taxes? Ah, uh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a pretty uh, uneducated view of it. I think it's easy to look at how uh, poorly the U.S. prioritizes things in the budget. Uh, increasing the military, the DOD budget, by more than the entire budget of Russia this last year. The entire military budget of Russia this last year is what I mean. And so it's like easy to say, well, taxes in the U.S. just go to pay for stuff like that. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. aren't charities just like a popularity contest? Like, I don't know, Josh, do you have a perspective on that? Uh, my thought was just that it it really depends on the charities and it depends on the country you're paying taxes to. Because I think that there are definitely like all charities and all governments are not created equally. In the United States, I think it'd probably be better if people just gave their money to give directly. That charity that just like sends people cash. I think that that would probably make a lot of people better off. But Mm -hmm. taxes are also really important. The problem is that you can't always control where tax money goes to. And often, even the most well-intentioned bills in order to get through Congress, like in order to get everyone's approval end up having to be stuffed full of earmarks that don't really end up, you know, doing what the the bill was intended to do to begin with. It's kind of a catch-22 for me. I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> totally. And I think, Chris, you made a good point about them being popularity contests because many of the most meaningful donations to charities are to the already biggest charities. So, mm, yeah, who knows what kind of yeah. good they're doing. So trick question, because the answer is both. You should do both as a company, pay your taxes and donate. Amazon does neither. Or meaningfully, anyway. <laughs> hey, who are you? He is a boy. I'm Jeff Bezos. He's very thin. Amazon.com. I'm sure tomorrow. <laughs> so Caraway don't like himself. Jeff Bezos. Right. So today's episode, we're talking about an article from Forbes. It's an opinion piece, and it's called Amazon, Neither Winning or Profiting from COVID-19 by Patrick Moorhead. <laughs> Welcome to Prime Evil Podcast. I'm Natalie Alsop Edwards. And I'm Chris Perkins. And our show is all about why Amazon is a horrible, horrible, giant company. 
So I've got two bits of news today. The first is a short tidbit from Wired that was published today, um, October 8th, 2020. And the title of the article is The 14 Juiciest Quotes from Housed Antitrust Report. So in response to the committee's request for a list of the company's top 10 competitors to Amazon during the antitrust hearings, Amazon identified 1,700 companies, including Eero, a company that Amazon owns. And then there's a quote. When you claim everyone under the sun is your competitor and even forget that your own, that your own company is one of the competitors you're claiming, <laughs> it's a sign that you've gotten too big. <laughs> so that was pretty silly. Um, and then my second bit of news, I decided to follow up on Amazon's year-old commitment to carbon neutrality that they announced late September of 2019. They have a whole page showing about all of the things they're supposedly doing to be carbon neutral. And one of their latest updates was Amazon launches the Climate Pledge Friendly Products, which is a minor change to their website that marks products that have one or more sustainable qualifications. So sure, we're constantly faced with the consumer scenarios that force us into hypocrisy, and I do see the benefits of choosing a lesser evil. Um, But this type of greenwashing mostly acts to further allow our current unsustainable consumer culture to continue to grow while benefiting the biggest shipping platform in in existence. And in many cases, the um, biggest contributor to greenhouse gases isn't the product itself, but the shipping. So they had a video explaining um, how minimal packaging and less air in the packaging, etc., makes more efficient transport, which at scale can greatly reduce carbon emissions. But there's something misleading about this. It doesn't reduce carbon, it reduces the potential carbon yet to be released, comparative to a projection of historical emissions. So this is a common rhetorical strategy in greenwashing to make it sound like buying this bottle of detergent is good for the environment, when really it's just less worse than what we've done historically. Um, And underneath that, you know, we need to really deeply rethink our methods of consuming particularly shipping small, individually packaged items to individual homes in multiple different boxes, as Amazon famously does. So that's not huge news, just to follow up on their commitment to carbon neutrality. Mm -hmm. That's something I came upon. I was going through their uh, uh, quarterly reports uh, for later on, and they talk about receiving... um, a large quantity of low carbon, like sustainable jet fuel, which it turns out has 20% less carbon uh, impact than a traditional jet fuel, which is, seems so ludicrous that companies are saying they'll be carbon neutral when these measures they're taking reduce things by not even half. So anyway, I thought that was disgusting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it's just... It's greenwashing. And, like, I'm sure that they're doing something. Like, anything is better than nothing, obviously. Sure. But it, they, they're, it, it always sounds so much better and, like, bolder. Um, so on this Climate Pledge page, there's a really large quote that reads, Bold steps by big companies will make a huge difference in developing technologies and industry to support a low-carbon economy, implying that these are bold steps. <laughs> and I'm like, if they wanted to be bold, why not use their outsized power in the online retail economy to only supply sustainable products on their site? Simply stop selling things that are polluting. Imagine the effect if Amazon did that. But obviously that's ridiculous. 
It just seems incongruent to be touting sustainability efforts by merely labeling greenwashed products while simultaneously profiting from the sales of other presumably unsustainable products that make up the bulk of items on their site. Definitely. Anyway, <laughs> there's constant hypocrisy from everyone <laughs> in terms of the environment. We're all guilty of it, but... True. Anyway, Amazon could be doing something actually bold. Maybe this is the first step. Sure. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Is that uh, all for news? Yep, that's all for news. Very Waving good. my arms around a lot in that, in that segment. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so, have, had you ever heard of this guy before? This uh, So, this Forbes article, Amazon Neither Winning or Profiting from COVID-19 by Patrick Moorhead, and that's back from uh, May 4th. Um, had, have you heard of this guy before, Josh? No, I haven't. Have you? I hadn't either. No. Um, I found like a handful of these guys who seem to, it seems to be their whole purpose is uh, articles about how Amazon's actually a good thing, like uh. how they are doing things right and how they're not... Re- like they could be a lot worse. It seems to be kind of the the points that they're always trying to make. Um, uh-huh. I went through this article, and he basically lists like reasons why Amazon is not profiting, why they're not uh, profiteering off of uh, the COVID pandemic. One thing that uh, Jeff Bezos announced at the end of the first quarterly or the first quarter in their uh, first quarterly report was that uh, Amazon was expected to spend 4 billion in operating income to fight covid and i i and so they listed some of the things that that money would go to uh that Amazon was attempting to develop a test which is good like i think i i think that's a good thing um for the coronavirus that's right a covid test oh sure um, sure and uh ir cameras installed in uh Wait, so they were Amazon like- workplaces Sorry, they were trying to develop like their own tests separately from other tests, or they were like participating in a venture to like funding something. I read they were creating their own testing facilities so they could con- they could test their employees without like b- oh, burdening other okay. testing resources. That's uh, something that I hadn't heard, Natalie. I heard two other things uh, though, which all of these are good. I think. I mean, they're they're. Not on the surface bad, you know, but like one was they were uh, mobilizing some of their researchers to develop a test, which I don't know where they got these people, like where they were working previously. But also they provided some 20 million or something in grants, I think, for other ventures, other uh, research institutions to, to possibly develop a test. I don't know if that was back in the first quarter, if it was more recently, but it's like the Amazon Web Services. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But, uh, you know, they, they were putting money into that. Another thing is that they installed all this uh, temperature check equipment in uh, workplaces. So I worked for Amazon briefly in May at a mm-hmm. sort center, sortation center in uh, Carlsbad. And they did have temperature checks. Every time you entered the building, you had to get your temperature checked. And it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that if you have a fever, it's too late, right? They spent a decent amount of money on something that is just better than nothing. But there was like a safety officer guy and he'd walk around and yell at people if they weren't social distancing. The masks were required. And that's another thing that uh, Amazon was, that they said that the 4 billion 
in their operating income from first quarter would go to. They said part of that would go to masks. And yeah, they apparently did provide 100 million masks to various workplaces. So I brought my own, but I could have gotten one from them if I needed to. The uh, the floor had like tape every six feet or so, like throughout the warehouse. It's like a constant reminder of what six feet looks like. Uh, like break room capacity was reduced. There was a little, I don't know if you've heard, maybe we talked about it in like the first episode, I can't remember, but uh, the uh, Pecky character, it's like an internal Amazon thing. Um, so this is from the warehouse. I'll put it in the chat here. It's a uh, Pecky with a ruler, and it says that he's a social distancing champion. <laughs> and, and so, like, obviously, on, like, an institutional level, they took it seriously. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, just or, seeing or, this. <laughs> right? <laughs> they took it uh, seriously in, like, a... They made it look like they were taking it seriously, and I have no reason to think that they, that they weren't. On the other hand... Mm-hmm. It was nearly impossible, just normal day-to-day work um, type movements and stuff. You'd bump into people and stuff like that. Like on paper, they're saying, stay six feet apart, but like they're not changing anything about the way that the business is set up to actually make that possible to adhere to? Possibly. I think that they did have fewer people on the floor than, than they normally would. But mm. but I'm not sure. And they were trying, and people were trying mm. to steer clear of each other. But there's just times when it would just happen, like by mistake. It turns out that like they did spend that four billion in operating income, and this is like a point that the author was trying to make, is that they they're they're not profiting because they're spending all this potential profit on COVID safety measures, and they did spend that. I'm, I was curious about this article about what all of the things that they said, all the claims they made about Amazon spending all this money to do great. Do all of those check out? The, the ones that I read, like everything seemed either that it happened because it was already in the process of happening or like the COVID tests. Now Amazon's claiming that they're going to test something like 50,000 employees a day starting in November. And who knows if that will happen. But that was like their latest announcement on that topic, you know? So like mm. they haven't, and they, they never said that they were sure going to make a successful test. Like everyone knows that research is frustrating and it takes time mm. and, and a lot of effort, but like, so you can't fault Amazon for not inventing a coronavirus test that was perfect, you know, in like three months, but you know, it didn't happen still. I noticed they mentioned increasing the minimum wage by $2 to $2 an hour to be $17 an hour. And I that's hero pay, which I guess even Amazon's <laughs> ended in May, but yeah. and they didn't even phrase it that way. It seemed kind of a little bit misleading, but I also don't understand if hero pay was something mandated or was that like like companies voluntarily said, "We'll pay you 2 extra dollars an hour." Do y'all know? It was it was uh <laughs> voluntary in that yeah, uh just that it was it was voluntary yeah i see okay i can imagine that it's also in their interest though to do that because they need to retain employees right at a time when probably some people might be considering either quitting their job or not looking for a job you know if they're able to to live with family 
I mean, I think that the the law number one about just how corporations and businesses function is that they never do anything that is not in the interest of their bottom line. Completely. And like even the testing and social distancing aspect is because they can't afford to have, you know, an entire warehouse get sick with COVID. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even even though it sounds really, um, you know, nice to do, it's benefits them also. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, to follow up on their safety measures, I looked up what like their case rate was, you know, like how many people got infected. And they didn't release that until like a month ago. They'd been pushed on it like all summer long and they wouldn't release it. And they were claiming that it would require the the numbers that they had would be misleading without context or without other companies also like sharing their data. But anyway, apparently almost 20,000 workers have had COVID-19. That actually looks good on paper. That's 1.44% of their like frontline employees got COVID. That is lower than the uh, community rate in a lot of places, but it's higher than the rate in New Hampshire, actually. Locally, uh, their, you know, their response hasn't necessarily been ideal. Amazon is exceeding the community rate in Minnesota and West Virginia, and in both cases, the Amazon's case rate, or in both states, the Amazon's case rate rates are nearly double the community's. So whatever they're doing, providing masks, doing temperature checks, things like that, it's not making up for these hotspot cases. And I don't know what these facilities may have been doing that uh, may have uh, caused these hotspots, but the one thing that would absolutely help would be to shut the place down for two weeks let everyone quarantine with pay and then clean the facility. That's something that they would never do. The things that they're spending their money on won't cut off their source of revenue, right? Like, which is fulfilling orders. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'd say that they're taking masks and stuff seriously. To me, that shows that like masks are a lot a lot better than nothing. And the fact that they're, they have better case rates than a lot of communities they're in isn't so much showing that Amazon's doing so great. It's showing that the US is just like doing so, so stupidly and poorly. So <laughs> like, that's what it tells me. But anyway, I just wanted to, these things that the author There's is pointing out that are- error, right? Like, I, like oh, I'm yeah. curious like what the margin of error is because there's always just like, random chance right like you could just not happen to encounter a super spreader or just happen to encounter one and so yeah i'd be super curious like in general you know what what can be attributed to company policy and what can be attributed to chance Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a great point and you know it could be that minnesota facilities like they, they could be outliers because they have fewer facilities there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, something like that where the numbers wouldn't average out in such a way. But did you have any uh, observations from the article about, like, before we get to the consumer stuff that we were going to talk about? Yeah, you know, reading through that article felt a lot like reading through... Um, reports published by the communist Chinese government in the 1950s that I did in grad school where you read it and you're just like this is just 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 so great you know like yes like go Amazon (laughs) and it's just like a little bit too much that way 
you know it's like yeah. a, they can do no yeah. wrong sort of a perspective and once i encounter just like that sort of rhetoric my mind kind of shuts off because i'm like i don't have the time to do the due diligence on everything you're saying but i can yes. tell just from your tone that your purpose here is to applaud amazon and so your your judgment and your analysis is taking place under a confirming evidence bias you know you're actively trying to spin things so my my trust level is close to zero that was completely my impression too i was like who wrote this it sounds like <laughs> an amazon about page <laughs> right um no that- and that shows like it's so hard to read the amazon their own uh, reports and stuff because they all have that tone and it's how it is where I work too. That's just like, that's the nature of corporations. I mean, I think, I think that's also how like the Mormon churches, for example, and the the reason being that the Mormon church is, you know, a corporate culture. I, um, when I first started working at a corporation, I was like, Whoa, like I suddenly weirdly feel at home. Why is that? And then I realized it's because I was raised (laughs) in a corporation. It's Mormon roots. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Um, This wondering who wrote this led me to find out that Forbes was bought in, I think it was 2011, bought by a Chinese media group called Integrated Whale Media Investments. So just so y'all know. Like a blue whale? Like whale, yeah. Like okay. the large mammal. <laughs> Integrated yeah. whale. That's and I didn't I didn't get too deep into it. I didn't find that informa- much information about them, but I just think that's interesting that Chinese corporations own various news sources in the US. Yeah. yeah. No, that is Especially considering hearing an article that was like a press release from Amazon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to cover real quick the the section t- uh, headed standing tall for its community. So Amazon mm-hmm. standing tall for its community. <laughs> oh my God. The section heads of this article were so just like contrived. Yeah, but they talk about donating <laughs> $5 million in Amazon devices to healthcare workers, patients, schools, and communities around the globe. So $5 million worth of like Echoes and Kindles and all that junk. Like uh, $10 million. This is really rich. They uh, provided $10 million in funding to provide relief to over 800 small businesses in Seattle and the Puget Sound through a relief fund. So these like businesses that they're devastating across the country mm. um and they're they're providing 10 million which i don't know natalie how how many like board game stores do you think you could save with 10 million dollars mm-hmm. like maybe one and a half i mean <laughs> right. how many times do you donate that money <laughs> yeah yeah and like totally uh, also, where I really wanted to know on that section what they're classifying as small and medium. Oh, yeah. yeah. People have different definitions of that, and I'm curious what they where, – what are their parameters? We're actually going to – we're going to have to do an episode about their uh, small business initiative because I think that's really interesting. They, so I mentioned that uh, grant system. I, I think it's a grants, but it's uh, for developing uh, COVID tests. That was, uh, they provided $20 million, and it's called the AWS Diagnostic Development Initiative. So that's what that is. And then I like this line. It says, Amazon's, and no, no apostrophe, but Amazon's giving is on a global level as well as a communal level. And it doesn't stop there. And then the next <laughs> paragraph, 
and it pretty much does stop there because the next Good paragraph Lord. is all about one thing, which is <laughs> that they're using flex drivers to deliver meals, which is funny because flex drivers use their own vehicles. Amazon is basically paying people minimum wage if they're lucky to use their own car to drive vehicle <laughs> to drive meals wow. around, which, it, you know, it's nice to do that, to deliver things to food banks and stuff. But, you know, they're using flex and not like their uh, delivery vans that they pay for the maintenance on. And then they also, and this is the biggest thing, and this is probably good because it consists of maybe uh, five, I think 5% of this uh, charity's total revenue for the year, but it's, uh, they donated uh, 10 or a hundred million to Feeding America, um, which is a, Apparently a good charity. I looked them up and they seem like uh, an efficient uh, charity providing food banks and things like that. But anyway, that's that's the uh, that's all the examples that this guy could come up with, which is what, 150 million, maybe something like that. Worth of donations overall. Wow. Something like that. What percent? What uh, percentage of Bezos's net worth does that? <laughs> we'll do the math later. <laughs> yeah. And now the main point that that we decided to go down uh, was we're talking about Amazon is ensuring the safety of its customers, and it's talking about prioritizing uh, essential goods over more high dollar items. So this guy, the author, says that he rather than wait three weeks for Amazon to send him a new TV, he he actually went out of his way to buy it from Best Buy. So they hated like, this part. This <laughs> what stupid. A, what a He's jackass! Like, they're, yeah. they're willingly foregoing these sa- these TV sales they could have been making. Or you could Here's an example of my weeks. own experience so noble, of buying right? it from a different big box. <laughs> so fucking stupid. So I looked it up and. So they've they've removed something like ten thousand fraudulent um, sellers for price gouging, something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, my aunt, I, I brought this up. Maybe it's already been in an episode, but she had tried ordering ordering a canning uh, lids, mm-hmm. the part that seals, and uh, from Amazon, and the seller just took her money and ran. Um, so awesome. like that guy was removed. But I'd consider that, you know, that's. I think COVID-related profiteering, sort of. But uh, apparently, and we don't have time to get into this today, but I'll send you this article, Josh. Uh, Apparently, some group called Public Citizen, citizen citizen.org, did a report about uh, price gouging during COVID. And it looks like the pricing of essential goods may have increased like tenfold. And Amazon's claim that that it was the fault of uh, third-party sellers kind of absolves them of of any fault. Yeah. But they still benefit from third-party sellers gouging because they get, you know, what, 30% seller now fees. of their uh, yeah. sale goes right to Amazon. So anyway, mm-hmm. even, even if what the author is saying is true, that they haven't been gouging and that they've been protecting consumers from price gouging, I'd still like to go over the this like core Amazon leadership principle that is uh, customer obsession. So, what does this mean? And like to me, it seems like there's some I think unintended uh, consequences of that. Walmart providing lower prices and that being like their main deal. What effects does that have on communities? On 
places that supply products, things like that. So that's kind of what I was curious about. But before we get into it, so I put that like Reddit thing in the chat. Could we go to that real quick? So this is a play about Reddit. Um, it's about, uh, it's from like uh, Tales from Retail. Who wants to be the brother character? That's orange. Wait, we're doing a play reading? Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Awesome. I will, I will be the <laughs> Who brother. Who wrote this play? Okay, it came from Reddit. <laughs> great. Yeah. Okay, so Josh is the brother character. Okay, and you want to be the husband, which is green. You don't get much of a line. Oh, but... yeah, I'll do the like <laughs> one line the husband gets. <laughs> no, I'm into it. <laughs> okay, okay. So Make it I'll... really good. Yeah. Okay, I'm doing stage directions and the character of the wife. So my bro, my bro used to work for an electronics store a while back. He hated when customers would come in, talk to him about certain electronic device for an hour, for about an hour only for them to say they'll buy it cheaper somewhere else. It wasted his time, and they would lose potential customers this way. One day, this older white couple came in and started inquiring about a certain camera. They asked basic questions that could be answered through Google, but my brother continued to help them. He seemed to like, uh, they seemed to like the camera, but don't like the, but didn't like the price. The wife said, But we saw this camera for the same price on Amazon, and it came with a bunch of stuff. Can't you give us a discount since it doesn't come with it? My bro. Sorry, but it's already on sale and the system can't make it lower than that. Then maybe you can give us some, uh, the other stuff for free. Amazon is selling their camera with all this free stuff. Uh, the husband pulls up the camera on his phone and shows it to my brother. That's mostly junk that will break quickly. You can buy off Amazon if you want that stuff, but there's no way we can give you our good stuff for free. But it would be much easier to get it from you. We really need it for tomorrow. We're hosting an event and we want lots of good photos. <laughs> Make it a good deal or we'll have to buy it from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> My bro went back and forth with them for another 25 minutes about not being able to do anything about the price or give them free stuff. He even encouraged them to buy it from Amazon if they liked that deal so much. Eventually the couple just left and said they would buy it from Amazon. At that point, my bro didn't care and was happy they were gone. They came back the next day, much to my brother's displeasure, the wife. So we checked the reviews, and a lot of people said the extra stuff was junk. We'll just buy it here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. They go back Rolling to the camera eyes. area. <laughs> <laughs> they go back to the camera area and see it's no longer there. My bro checks, checked his store's inventory and stopped himself from grinning. Oh, I'm sorry, but it looks like one of my coworkers sold the last one yesterday. What? But we really need that camera. God. <laughs> Assholes. This stuff happens so often. <laughs> like, it's so... I mean, I love this stuff. I. It's so fun to to talk bad about bad consumers and bad tippers and things like that. So right. I'm definitely biased. But I'm curious about how... This idea that we put consumers first, that Amazon has this uh, customer obsession. It's like one of their like uh, outlined leadership principles. Like, how is that harmful? I was just going to say, I don't think that this is at all unique to Amazon. I think almost every place that I've worked has has also said like customer obsession is one of our leadership principles. Um, I think that it's really interesting 
when it comes to things like corporate leadership principles to not think about what it means, but think about what it does for the people working inside the organization. Because like inside an organization like Amazon, you have thousands of people that are all competing with each other for raises and promotions and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They all want to do a great job so that even if they don't get promoted, they can get a job somewhere else and have a good reference, right? Like, like everyone just wants to be the best. And things like leadership principles give people, um, you know, a direction to orient themselves. It's like a compass. You know, if I do this thing, I'll get a good review. If I, you know, have this principle, or if I show that, then I'll, I'll do well. And so what happens in reality, I think, in, in many organizations is that customer obsession really just means the employees who seem the most customer obsessed are the ones who are going to get ahead. And so then everyone has an incentive to show that they're more customer obsessed than everyone else. But in reality, most of these people like do not know or speak to their customers um, unless you have user researchers or market researchers who are conducting qualitative research and going out and speaking to people. Um, And so for the most part, customer obsession just becomes a language in which to frame people's opinions. So in that case, it seems like if I was in a situation like that, what, what would I, how would I try to make this actionable? Like how would I try to adjust my work to fit in line with this leadership principle? And like, I wonder what that means to the average employee or even the employee, like executives or whatever, who like, Mm -hmm. it seems like most people, to me, it seems like most people would default to, well, uh, low prices is the main thing that motivates a, a consumer. Whatever the company has to do to lower prices, that seems to be the best way to make customers happy, right? Like all things being equal. It's not always the case. So for example, when you have a, so like CVS, for example, we have a a corner store that, um, you know, you might drop in to grab something conveniently. They also sell beauty supplies, you know, makeup. Um, They have a lot of shampoo, conditioner, et cetera. Um, And yet there are also the existence of all these luxury brands that cost two or three times as much um and do, would not sell well at CVS. If CVS started selling those, the people who go to CVS wouldn't buy them because they're too expensive and the people who buy them wouldn't go to CVS to get them. And so like actually, you know, deciding whether or not uh low prices are part of your identity is part of a strategy because you could also go the other route and mark things up and make the appearance of being like a luxury or specialty thing. And then you'll attract a completely different clientele, but you can still do it, right? So, so if you have low prices, you're really just serving a segment of the population. So it's really, that's really a tool to decide who your customers are rather than, you know, because right. I mean, the phrase customer obsession really begs the question of who are the customers. Um, right, who you're targeting with yeah. this price range or product or whatever. And a company like Amazon inevitably has like probably thousands and thousands of different customer groups and they're targeting things for them specifically that, that, you know, no one else is even tracking. Like I think in your first episode, you mentioned diapers, right? Like diaper shoppers are paying attention to diapers.com versus Amazon, but not me. So Amazon can't be customer obsessed about my preferences when they're thinking about diapers. 
right? And so there are probably like many, many different niches like that where what it means to be customer obsessed is very, very different. But what happens is, I mean, in a corporation like Amazon, most of the action happens in meetings where people, you know, discuss things out or argue them out. And something like customer obsession becomes an analytical lens where, you know, the arguments that people make, if they can make it appear sufficiently customer obsessed, or if they make it appear more customer obsessed than someone else's argument, then, you know, they can significantly influence the decision making, which can make them look good. And so I think it becomes a, a, a strategic tool for the people who work inside the organization more than anything. I think there's a, there's different parameters, too, that people use to to classify their obsession. Like so, some company says, we're obsessed with our customers because our prices are low. And another company says, we're obsessed with our customers because we talk to them about the products. Like in this in this little play, you're not going to get that type of customer service at Amazon. Like you, you'll be lucky to even talk to somebody after like 15 pages of FAQs. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I wonder if this, uh, electronics retailer that the, the, the guy was talking about was B and H in New York, where that's their whole deal. It's, it's like a, they sell bottom tier up to like professional newscasting, uh, AV equipment basically. And uh, you go in there, you look at anything for more than uh, a minute and someone comes up and, and tries to help you. And, and they genuinely, I, like their whole focus is uh, employees who know a lot about whatever uh, area of the store that they're working in. And so they provide that, they, they provide that thing that Amazon could never provide, tailored expertise sort of thing. So. What's interesting about the tailored expertise is there's no guarantee that you're going to buy something. Like you go in there yeah. and talk to somebody for an hour and they're not, you don't pay them up front for that consultation. And, um, but people have become entitled to low prices and then can go get this free information in person from people because there's no like obligation to buy something from them, which creates a scenario like this and an, an abuse of the brick and mortar. And so I guess... You that, know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's what my my take on there being low prices. And I, I when you can get that commodity or you can get the thing that the higher end place provides, which is like advice from an expert... Uh, you can get that for free and then take it over to Amazon, which provides a lot of the same goods for 30% off or more. It just, it seems like an unfair um, system that we have set up for, I don't know, it just seems like people, even people going for luxury or higher end goods will still go for lower prices when when given the right, opportunity. Unless, but, unless they have mm. some like moral compass and understanding of like what it takes to offer the true customer service. Cause really they're enjoying these two, they're enjoying both offerings of low prices and good customer service, but they're getting one for free. The person who, the company that wins out is the one who is able to offer the lower price yeah. because yeah. they don't have to offer the customer service. In addition, there's such a, a wide diversity of personalities and values in any given society that it becomes extremely difficult to make broad statements that that actually mm-hmm. hold true and i think that successful companies are often engaged in far more complex strategies than observers are aware of um and this was something i didn't realize until you know like being in a corporation 
but like you will have hours long discussions about the shape of a button, you know, or about, you know, and conduct studies about them, you know? And so, so things like prices, they're not, they're not determined, you know, it's not just like, oh, we're going to go low prices and that's it. It's very product <laughs> yeah. specific and it comes from studying the people who buy this product. And I think if anything is unfair in this, it's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's part of it is that big companies like Amazon can afford to like undercut, right? Like you discussed with diapers.com. But the other part of it is that, that giant corporations can afford to hire very, very smart people to study specific communities, figure out what their needs are, and then try to find ways to meet them better than, you know, the small brick and mortar shops do. So do you think that Amazon is catering to both of the, to all of these groups that you've listed of like low price seekers and high end consumers? Oh, I have no idea, but I would assume so just because Amazon is up to so much, right? Like I think, isn't their biggest source of revenue actually Amazon web services, you know, like cloud hosting and stuff. Like it's not even the, you know, the the retail end is like not the big part of the game here, right? They're, they have their, they're doing so many different things that I would be very surprised if they weren't somehow catering to high-end luxury shoppers in some way. Yeah. Which, yeah, there are, there are plenty of very expensive things on Amazon as well. And it's crazy that their web services does make up the bulk of their income while simultaneously com- commanding like almost 50% of the online retail market, which is just right. ludicrous at how big they are. It's gotten to the point that they're like corporations that are competing with Amazon. Like a corporation is never just the corporation. The corporation has like hundreds and hundreds of ancillary companies that they contract out to do stuff, right? And it's gotten to the point that that some companies that compete with Amazon refuse to work with companies that use Amazon web services. So if you're, you know, oh, if you're competing with Amazon and you're looking for let's say uh, you know, a, a graphic design company if that graphic design company that you're going to hire stuff out to hosts any of its stuff on Amazon web services, then you wouldn't work with them. You'd find a different company. Wow. (laughs) Well, I think, I think though that if we're going to make sense of corporations and if we're going to critique them, then the first thing that we have to establish is what corporation means. You know, why don't we call these just big businesses? Why don't we call them, uh enterprises you know there's so many other words we could use for them and yet we use corporation why is that for me it comes back to embodiment right corporation is that, that's what it means is embodiment um from the latin root and whenever i think about corporations i actually think about thomas hobbes the political theorist who wrote you know the leviathan and said that which has the famous quote that life is nasty brutish and short etc but his, <laughs> his whole point was that the state, the government, is a leviathan in that it is one giant body in which we are each organelles. You know, we're, we're all of us are organs and we all function together as a giant body. That becomes a really interesting analytical lens for corporations, because if we think about corporations as giant bodies, the workers of which are only organs then we can't use reason or rationality to understand them anymore. We have to take a biological approach and think about corporations the same way that we think about organisms. So what, uh, what do you get from 
from that viewpoint, I guess, how, how do you feel about yeah. giant well, for me, corporations? For me, it changes the question. The reason I thought about that and brought it up was because this, this question of like, why are they doing this unreasonable thing when they could do something else? Like to me, that question is being asked from a perspective of like expecting them to use reason or expecting them to use rationality when really it's an organic system. And so I think that the, uh, a more insightful question is what purpose does it serve for them? You know, and, and, you know, like where inside of this organization is it coming from? And the other thing that I think is, is really interesting about thinking of corporations in like with this metaphor of bodies is that the body contains all sorts of systems that have no idea that they're part of a body, you know, like, like the gut biome is like a big, is like the big one recently that people talk about how like we have all these, you know, microbiota living in us that are different organisms from us, but that thrive and survive in the internal ecosystem of our bodies and then influence our health in these huge ways. And I think it's very similar with corporations in that there are all sorts of internal factors that have very little to do with the bottom line or that have very little to do with, you know, taking reason or strategy that actually end up influencing the health of the organization as a whole. Okay. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, let's like the third party seller, like the gouging thing, whoever's managing, uh, those accounts sees an egregious form of gouging and they, they target them and they feel good about doing their job by removing this guy that's trying to stockpile like hand sanitizer and sell it for a hundred dollars for 16 ounces or something insane like that. When they don't see like customer complaints about things that could also be considered gouged, which I read that in some states, 10%, a 10% price increase violates some states gouging, like price gouging laws. So they might not notice such an increase. Like, like Amazon isn't making like a rational choice to, to incentivize gouging for the sake of gouging. They're simply just not flagging um, accounts that could be considered to be unethical and it reflects on the bottom line as increased revenue because they've just sort of ignored it. And like people aren't really thinking that much about what the other uh, departments are doing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example. So if we think about, about the people at Amazon who, who govern like gouging and who are, who are looking out for price gouging. So we have to remember that they are on a team that team is led by a person or a group of people who has a limited number of resources at their hands. So let's imagine that it's a team of 10, you know, who does this. It's probably much bigger than that. I have no idea. But let's just say that it's a team of 10. So then the manager of that team of 10 has to establish a strategy for how to identify price gouging, which is not a simple task. Like, let's imagine that you have, you know, this, this, giant living database of data that's like you know coming from all these purchases constantly and all these cells and you have to somehow identify like which like individual pieces of data correlate to a number that is perceived by humans as unreasonable compared to like how that piece of data is associated with numbers out uh, elsewise you know what i mean like like it actually becomes an extremely complicated problem and so you have a team that's like trying to solve that problem any solution that they come up with is always going to 
leave you know some things out um and so even and then i think that, that there's always decreasing marginal returns right for how much effort or how much investment you put into any given issue and so let's say amazon realizes you know what we're not we're not actually succeeding at at our goal of getting rid of price gouging so let's hire 15 more people for this team and let's head it with two like joint managers right um, they're still not going to catch everything. And with each additional employee working on it, like each additional employee adds less to the effort. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think from, from that perspective, then it becomes not an issue of, oh, Amazon is evil. It becomes an issue of, you know, maybe they don't have good enough management practices or maybe they like haven't found the right solution yet. Um, and maybe they'd be very open to finding the right solution, right? If someone could like identify yeah. it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think more than them being evil at the root of this is that they're too big to manage the problems mm, that they're creating. I totally agree with that. Yes. That's, and I think that's the crux of like the entirety of this project is like they're just too big. Like no matter if they try to do all these great things, it's impossible because mm-hmm. <laughs> of their size. I agree with that. I am still a little bit stuck on Josh's metaphor about organs in a body. And I'm curious could, if you could apply that to Amazon, for instance. Um, so, so the body would be Amazon in this case. So they're the corporation. So they're the body, right? And they're living inside of their body. I mean, just like, just like I'm a body in an ecosystem, they are a body in an ecosystem. What does a body have to do to survive in an ecosystem, right? It has to consume things, obviously. Um, but in a social sphere, like when you're a, when you're a social species, you also have to have each other to survive. And so you have to be both giving and taking, right? And so, so there has to be a reason why something this big has made it this far in terms of what it's doing for its ecosystem. Because if, if an ecosystem can't support the species, the species just dies, right? So if we want to identify the factors that have enabled Amazon to get this big, then we really have to think about society more broadly, the entire ecosystem, and just view Amazon as like one body, you know, one out of many corporations, like corporations are kind of their own species, right? This like macro human species sure. all competing with each other in, in the environment of human society. Yeah, and, inf- and influence one another and the, and the very environment. Like if one if one species is eating all of the grass, mm-hmm. whatever to extend this yeah. metaphor, there's no more grass for the other for the other members of the ecosystem to um, consume, and then they fail, which causes other ecological collapses, and it all like ultimately will harm the species, the Amazon. In Definitely. this, so I think metaphor. that a great metaphor for Amazon specifically and its relationship to small businesses, in the view that that you guys are advocating, is that they're an invasive species. You know, they're they're coming in and they're 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 filling biological niches that other people would would you know normally fill. Now the question is, are there other niches for those other people to go fill or not? You know, yeah. does, does the does the ecosystem adopt to the invasive species or does the invasive species destroy the ecosystem? And I think that in ecology, sure. I think that there are, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are examples of both, right? 
It'd be like a, a native species being displaced by an invasive species, but finding a new niche or something yeah. like. Sure. Which, yeah, I'm sure that can happen, but it's definitely like going to cause some upheaval and, and probably displace more than just the one. Sure. Like you think it's one species, but really mm-hmm. it's a cascading effects on all the surrounding mm-hmm. ecosystem. That that kind of reminds me, I sent you that line. I don't know who this James O'Connor is. I don't know if you know who he is, but... I don't. He wrote a book called, like, A Sustainable Capitalism or two... Something like posing a question, can you make a sustainable capitalism? But, uh... So I got that line from a blog (laughs) called economicthought.net, which seems... I don't know, it doesn't seem like a very good blog. But it points out one of these uh, contradictions of capitalism, according to James O'Connor, is, uh... When uh, individual capitals attempt to defend or restore profits by increasing labor productivity, speeding up work, cutting wages, and using other time-honored ways of getting more production with fewer workers, meanwhile paying them less, the unintended effect is the reduced demand for consumer commodities. So that's talking about labor not being able to afford whatever goods they produce it. Like is what I got out of that. But then the way it ties in with this uh, ecosystem displacing small business kind of idea is the the author of the blog who opposes this view says, in many respects, the these contradictions uh, are just wrong. Like the idea that increasing the productivity of labor can lead to a reduction in wages, which I don't know where he gets that idea because wages have not increased since like like they haven't been on track with productivity, so I don't see why productivity increase wouldn't correspond to any wage rate. But anyway, and then he follows that up with, or the idea that capital-intensive techniques will lead to higher unemployment, when instead it will just lead to re-employment of labor to other industries. And so that's where it ties in. Really roundabout way to get there. But I'm thinking that people assume that if you... You're a Luddite if you don't accept like new forms of new forms of retail, new new technologies, things that will uh, destroy jobs. Like Amazon, according to to people who've examined this, uh, does result or their their actions do result in a displacement of jobs, uh, fewer jobs, like a net job loss, I guess. And so like. People say, like, no, well, like, people will just find new jobs. Like, people found new jobs after they invented the cotton gin. That's a bad example, but, like... Which actually created a lot of more <laughs> exactly. slave jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you call it, you can call bad, it a job. Bad example. But, anyway. like, yeah. So, like, uh... <laughs> We've, well, we can think of, like, the mechanical loom, which is where Luddites yeah, come exactly. from. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a great example. People did find new jobs. Like, um, new industries have come up, but... Why is there anything inherent to that that says there, there's no reason to think that that would continue on forever, excepting that Amazon is going to displace small business? There's no reason to there's no guarantee, I guess, that uh, it will result with in like greater like general wel- welfare for society or it doesn't mean the opposite either. But yeah. I think to me, there are a lot of fundamental questions raised by this discussion that seem initially irrelevant to to Amazon, but that are really necessary in order to formulate an ethical argument about Amazon. So, for example, Mm. is or ought the purpose of business be to improve the general welfare, welfare of society? 
And if so, then how ought that to be regulated and maintained and who defines the general welfare of society? My problem with bringing up the general welfare of society in conversations about ethics is that most groups of people tend to have radically different definitions of what a good society looks like. You know, for, for um, Mike Pence, a good society <laughs> might be one where, <laughs> where, you know, gay people can't get married and women are in the home, right? That is not my right. vision of a good society at all. And so, <laughs> so I think we have yeah. to be really careful when we bring up social welfare and like general societal welfare, because that is one of many terms that really just slips in there to take the place of an entire discussion that needs to be had. Even in terms of treating workers, there's historically been um, really different views about what is good treatment based on a corporation, on the corporation versus the worker. Well, yeah. So like... If I work for a tiny business, they might not be able to afford to to maintain the business and provide me with health care, which I might get, which I would get at a large corporation. Uh, I don't know. It's complicated. Like I could go work at Amazon and get great benefits or I could work for like a small landscaping company and not get any benefits. And well, like, I'll, I'll give you a very, a very real life example of this. Sure. In 2017, I had two back surgeries. And in 2020, this year, I also had two back surgeries. Yay. Jeez. Oh, um, wow. In 2017, <laughs> I worked for a very small company with very shitty benefits. And I came out of that $10,000 in debt for, for, you know, medical reasons. Um, this time around, I work for Walgreens, big corporation. And I had great disability pay while I was away from work. And my insurance was so much better that I came out of it with just $600 that I needed to pay. Um, and so it really can be a world of a difference, you know, working for a big company that's able to afford good benefits versus a small company that isn't able to afford good benefits. Now, the big picture problem here, though, is that I, as you know, someone who is, is looking for people to purchase my labor because I am not of the landed gentry, <laughs> um, I am forced then to, or like I am incentivized to be employed by corporations who can provide those you know, benefits to me. Now, the reason why is because there's no one else to provide those benefits. So if, you know, if, if we were, if we lived in a country with a really, really robust social welfare system, then perhaps I would never face this dilemma. You know, I would have 2017 and 2020 would have been the exact same story of, you know, like I had this really shitty situation and then I had to use government health care and be provided like a government disability wage. Um, that comes with its own problems. But but I do think that, you know, I, and that's also an example of how these things fit into a bigger ecosystem and how the incentives of individuals to make little micro choices that then result in these like emergent big phenomena um, kind of plays out in daily life. I guess uh, trying to draw a line anywhere seems pretty like trying to have a stance or like a political opinion seems like 
totally irrational if like there's obviously so many different ways to look at problems but Mm. i'm glad uh i'm glad you brought up all that uh, all these uh alternative points um they put a lot of this stuff into context i think that's really useful so yeah good well i'm 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 happy to happy to chat <laughs> <laughs> right i think that like, ultimately, like i i just completely agree that the the big problem is that amazon is just far 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 too big right the the mere fact that we can't comprehend it is you know part of the problem but it's not the only problem right because we also can't comprehend the government and how that all works and we also can't comprehend the healthcare system and how health insurance all works you know like um no one understands it all no one in this giant yeah. giant interconnected entangled system of 21st century capitalism understands how it all works and how it fits together and so i think that 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 forces us to ask ourselves if no one can understand these macro phenomena, then ought we spend our time trying to comprehend macro phenomena or should we spend our time on the micro phenomena? Sure. (laughs) We're being forced to look at these macro phenomena because our companies and governments are becoming so huge that we're forced to attempt to comprehend it. Like maybe there should be something there to check this and say, Hey, it's too big. <laughs> no one can understand. So we got to make something bigger to to say you're too big. <laughs> yeah, something even bigger that comes down and <laughs> we got to make a bigger fish. fish sure. is too big. <laughs> yeah, like for me, it it seems like when when I think about the the jobs that Amazon provides that seem like quality jobs uh, or or any large company, they take advantage of economies of scale and things like that. Like, there's a lot of uh, reasons to to doubt, like, kind of this feeling I have that Amazon's horrible, and I I just dislike them on so many levels, and a lot of them are just, like, personal biases and stuff. But then you think about, to kind of go back to the article, if Amazon is not profiting off of COVID, if, they're, if all their operating income goes back into COVID uh, safety measures, how did Jeff Bezos... How did he gain like $80 billion this year? There's these like glaring facts that come out that are like small points, but they don't, they seem like to show indisputably, and that's not a good word, but they seem to show that there is something really wrong with how this stuff is set up. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, that's just something they didn't address in this article that, they're pretending to pay attention to you, but the math just doesn't add up because they're not looking at the entire picture for sure. Sure, yeah. Like, Amazon may not have gained massive shareholder dividends for, you know, I don't know how, they're, how they pay out, but, like, they may not have gained a ton in the first quarter, the second quarter, but uh, Jeff Bezos sure did, and most of his net worth is based on equity in Amazon, so... Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really important point right there that most of his his um, equity is based on the value of Amazon because I think that a big problem when people discuss billionaires, and I'll say before I say anything about this that I personally am of the opinion that billionaires ought not exist. 
Um, and I, I say that because, because what I'm about to say is going to probably sound like the opposite. Um, but I, th- I think that a big, a big problem with how people talk about billionaires is that we, we measure their worth in dollars. And so we tend to assume that their wealth is dollars. But that's yeah, not the yeah. case. You know, they're like, people, people are right. like, well, it's, it's assets. assets, right? You can't just liquefy assets overnight. And so people are like, well, you know, there's this problem going on. And why doesn't Jeff Bezos just spend some of his billions of dollars to fix it? like well what if like you know the his billions of dollars um are all assets in a company and so then if he was to fix this big societal problem by spending his money he'd actually have to sell his equity which would then just be in the hands of another person you know like yeah it's mm-hmm. it's you know the, the, the wealth the capital is is still there um and it's still probably aggregated into the hands of a few people just he's now decided not to be the the figurehead of it you know right yeah so i think it's like thinking about billionaires can be more problematic than people first assume that doesn't mean they ought to exist but it just means that you know the solution to the problem of billionaires is i guess a stickier one right than people like, want to acknowledge it's not just an income tax issue or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a, that it's not, that's not the solution. Right. I think that is a really interesting point though, of like, this is just a person who's been put in or who's created a position to control a lot of goings on, whether that's assets or workers Mm -hmm. or fences or whatever they own. And, um, who should be in control? Yeah. I don't know. No one. Anyway. No one should be sense. in control. <laughs> no one. Yeah, I mean, the people. Like, it should be divided. Exactly. That's the like, point. Yeah. Like, the solution <laughs> when one person owns literally all of the property in a city, the solution is to give property rights to, you know, to individuals to divide up their, their land empire. Yes. Um, sure. It's not yeah. like, I, like, what's the solution to Amazon? Break it up. You know, make it become a lot of, like, small businesses. Um, sure. Yeah. And it would be super interesting to see how they operate when Amazon Web Services is not allowing their retail side to to continue to undercut other companies and to like if they have to restrict like they're investing a lot in, uh, you know, developing their own logistics networks, um, like sidestepping established logistics companies like UPS or the USPS, you know, we should probably move on to just talking about how ludicrous it is to talk about a billionaire's wealth and what that means and like how to handle it. Uh, <laughs> I guess we should move on to, to the Bezos watch. Yeah, section. though this is, <laughs> yeah. this is interesting. And it's, I love getting your insight, Josh, because um, you're bringing up a lot of questions that we've just like made assumptions about through this. Like it's so easy to just hate Amazon and make all these generalizations. So um, yeah, so do y'all want to hear about Jeff Bezos's <laughs> net worth? Yes. Speaking of. <laughs> okay, so his net worth as of October 7th was $189 billion, which uh, year to date is a growth of $73.6 billion, wow. which is almost doubled since last year. So for this visualization, I'll take the weight of a famously large man, Andre the Giant. <laughs> who, by all accounts, was a very sweet and talented actor, wrestler, and stuntman. And he weighed, which I assume is at his peak weight, 
520 pounds and was seven feet, four inches tall. So if pounds were dollars by weight, Jeff Bezos's net worth would equal 363 million Andre the Giants. (laughs) Wow. Which is a crazy number. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) With that many Andres at the height of seven feet, four inches tall, these six, three hundred, sorry, these 363 million Andres could touch fingertips and circle the earth at its equator 19 <laughs> times. Wow. Uh, there's nothing. <laughs> My mind is blowing up. <laughs> I just love <laughs> like <laughs> visualizations that don't really help you comprehend it, but I mean, that's the whole point of this. Bit. They're also just like gi- other giant yeah, numbers. Like, yeah. Exactly. Like, let's take one thing you can't comprehend and make sense of it by another thing. Well, I think that's that's, uh, that's exactly yeah, the problem. Yeah, it's like with slightly smaller. The human mind. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, that's what's so ludicrous. Like, we've divided his massive net worth into, we've divided it by like, multitudes into also giant numbers that's what's so insane about it like you still can't right. comprehend it and, and the problem is like when you're we, when you're talking we, about like billions of dollars like billion itself i think is just well, like one billion is a number so big that like the human mind already cannot comprehend it and so why would you take an individual human mind like Jeff Bezos's and put it in charge of 180 billion? <laughs> you know, right. like Jeff Bezos also <laughs> yeah. cannot comprehend his wealth, <laughs> which is part of the ridiculous yeah. part yes, of it. Yes, like, totally. He's probably like, wait, how much money? <laughs> like, like how, how different would society so, be if we just had this like axiom that no one can have more money than they can comprehend? Yeah, <laughs> they make you count, and the number yeah. that you can count to—that's how much money you can have. <laughs> or, or even spend. Like some people on Instagram, I've seen uh, whatever equations to say you'd have to be spending like five million dollars a second to be able to spend all of this money in a lifetime. Or I can't remember the number, sure. but yeah. it's oh, just yeah. fucking crazy. But also, I mean, if that's all the worth of Amazon, then that isn't even coming from him right like he's not the person that we can blame for this the, per- the the people who are to blame are the people who are buying trading and selling amazon stocks you know who are suddenly willing to buy it at yeah. a higher price and then well, at a higher one and at a higher one um <laughs> yeah i mean bezos's net worth is partially amazon but also like blue origin and you know 50 other companies and and um that he's largely invested in or owns. Yeah, I, I need to dig into and, and see like if anyone has uh, numbers on the proportion of his wealth that are tied to, to Amazon. Mm. And stuff. Well, because then, if it's other it companies, it's still the same problem of like, you know, like yeah. the, the thing driving the wealth is the trading of stocks on the stock market, you know, and then yes. so it becomes a conversation yeah, of like, speculation. What, what is the stock market? Where does it come from? Is it... Is it a legitimate institution or, you know, or is it <laughs> And that not? you're, like, everyone in the U.S. is trained to, you're, you're almost held hostage by it. Like, if President Trump does a tax cut, it improves the stock market. People say, well, the stock market's up. President Trump's really good with the economy. It, it, it's just so, it, because people can't comprehend our economic system. So, mm-hmm. so they latch on to very simple metrics that don't reflect, they don't reflect unemployment or any number of, or poverty rates or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and, but also like I have a cousin who's like a wealth management guy and it's like, obviously 
you're managing someone's wealth, you're going to be investing in companies that are successful. So it kind of is a positive feedback loop where, you know, a company starts to succeed and people start trading in their company and its value is raised and it's a mess. (laughs) It is. And another problem, yet another problem is that Again, no one understands the entire stock market, especially with like the way things are now, because so much trading is done by algorithms, right? Yeah. And so, and and I think that there's like, there's just an increasing presence of of AI within um, financial markets that no individual really comprehends. And so I think that one of the fundamental problems of a living as a human being in the 21st century is that we don't know how we live. <laughs> we don't understand our lives. And also the task of understanding our own oh lives my God, is impossible. Totally. And so the question is like, how do you, because I, I mean, for me, the question always just comes back to how do you live a good life, right? I think that's the fundamental philosophical question. And so it's like, like in the 21st century, it's like, how do you live a good life in this circumstance where you can't even understand your life, you know, where you can't even understand how (laughs) your life works or functions or anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, in in ways that we're like, that we're like allegedly capable of understanding. Cause there's, there's always like the existential why, like nobody understands why we exist. That's always there. But this is something that we ostensibly could understand. And yes, that's, that's <laughs> a very important point. And we've created I totally it. agree with that. We created yes, it. Yes, we have created things that we cannot understand, which is different than just being born into a wild yeah. universe that, you know, is right. beyond our comprehension to begin with. Like it's finite, but yeah. not... Well, there's that. You but know? not to any reasonable degree, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh. But I don't think that means that we should give up. Like, I think that what you guys are doing is super admirable. And I think it's it's really important. I mean, I love to, you know, just calling it the Jeff Bezos watch. Like, watching is so important. <laughs> you know, just like watching, bearing witness to what's totally. happening, discussing things as they go. And for me, the answer most often comes sure. down to no one has any fucking clue what's going on. But I'm happy yes. that, you know, I'm happy to Completely. have the conversation that brought me there. Yeah. Yeah, and you understand a bit, a little bit by bit, and it's that helps. Yeah. It improves your quality of life, mm. maybe. And also I think that, yeah. that it's <laughs> it's really important to find new territories of ignorance. <laughs> you know, like like yes. uncovering just how much you don't know about about the, that's like that's one of the the, the most um, delightful things about just studying in general is just like completely you know, realizing just how little you know. Because like one minute you're like, oh, I guess I know things, and then you discover something new, and you're like, wait, there's so much still in the world. Holy shit! Um, with that, should we move on to our final? Is it our final uh, segment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, reviews. Yeah. <laughs> The best part. Okay, so I have a review. I have this is for Josh to guess. Okay. We're gonna play a game, and it's guess the item. So I'm gonna read two reviews, and we're gonna see if you can guess what item. And these are from Amazon. Okay. Of course. Okay. So review number one is five stars. Open quote. As soon as I opened the box and saw the way the blank were cut and packaged, I knew that this was going to be quality stuff. I pulled one out of the box, and the aroma of blank was such a stunning surprise. (laughs) (laughs) The single most enjoyable unboxing experience I've had in a long time happened to be a box of blank shrugs. I hereby dub the blank blank company 
the apple ink of blank blanks. <laughs> the blank burns smooth and clean, and to my taste, they are the best I've used in years. Needless to say, I'll only be buying this brand from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was a real review. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, the thing that just blows my okay, mind okay. is these people who write reviews. <laughs> I just yes. I, I part of me loves them. I've actually, as part of my job, interviewed a lot of people who are like really avid review writers, and they just yeah. have such a different personality than a lot of other people. They're like, feel like like for them it's yes. like part of being responsible and helping other people out and stuff and i'm like wow i never think Aww. about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally and it, that's really cute yeah i have no idea what that's it's like a civil duty to like you know fill out yeah. reviews or questionnaires and that's that's kind of <laughs> precious okay um next is the one star a one star okay. review open quote just got home and saw my box of cooking blanks what a disappointment I hope they give off good blank, since I'll never buy them again. As others have said, it's almost like kindling. Oh, shit. <laughs> I spent nearly $40 for a bunch of tiny blank. I went to Home Depot last week and got a big bag of blanks for $17. Save your money and look elsewhere. <laughs> okay, so you might be able to get, I don't know. Can you guess what it is? I'm having a hard time. I'm having a really hard time. I'm like thinking about like things that, you know, that have like an immediate smell, but that are like, that need to be cut and packaged. Because I want to say candles for a minute, but I'm like, you don't cut a candle. And it's okay. So it's something in the kitchen, something in the kitchen that is like cut and packaged that you could get at Home Depot that also smells, is it soap? No. Oh, dang it. I have no idea. I have no idea. Okay. So... When I searched this, I was like, okay, what's the dumbest thing that could possibly be available on Amazon? And I sort of didn't think I would find results, but of course there were many. Um, this is a box of firewood <laughs> oh. that you can buy on Amazon for $40. <laughs> and it's like, you know, one by one, it's like a one foot cubic box of firewood and Anyway, the the reviews ranged from like highly disappointed bits of kindling to this guy who was like all about it. <laughs> okay, when you said bits of kindling, I was like, okay, so it's like, is it used to start fires, or is that are they just describing a texture? Sure. Like, like... <laughs> the first guy it almost sounded like like cigars or something. Like I knew what it was because he told me before, yeah. but like um, that guy, like I wonder what he does like, like if he fancies I, I mean, himself imagine... a writer or something right yeah. it was a very um fluffy <laughs> well, I think there's actually there's like a, there's a whole culture of people writing reviews on purpose to be funny and how like over the top they are yes oh totally so yeah. i wouldn't be surprised if this is just like someone yeah, going totally. in and you know just trying to troll <laughs> yeah and that's <laughs> Yeah, maybe, that's the best. Maybe. Just the the volume of reviews that you get that are just so, regardless of what the intention was, like there's still so much in <laughs> entertainment value, I think, for just seeing what people think yeah. or what they think you want to hear about some stupid thing like yeah. like ordering like... Fucking <laughs> firewood. Which, yeah. By the way, you're not supposed to use firewood from like outside your area because of like... Problems with invasive species and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I didn't so, know that. 
<laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it, on top of that, I just think it's like from an environmental standpoint, is such a ludicrous thing to be shipping across oh, the yeah. country because well, uh, depending on where you are, maybe, but it's a really small amount of firewood for a very high price. And it reminds me of like there was a I read an article about um, people shipping tumbleweeds <laughs> across the country because they were like this fashion like object that people were putting in their windows in Aww. New York. And it's just oh, so really ludicrous. It, it just seems so silly to to do. They should ship tumbleweeds to use them like plays and stuff. He could blow it across the stage. Yes. And- I mean, I think they do, and that's what or like shipping rocks, which people sure, also yeah. do, and it's um it's something that we can it's unique to our t- to this time where fossil fuels are so cheap that we can just ship whatever the fuck <laughs> we want across the country, I- including firewood for forty dollars. <laughs> In the photos, you know, it's a it's like a one by one foot box, you know. Anyway. I, yeah, uh, bottled water always Excuse makes me. me think of that. That people, yes, just complete, a great example. It's just the most ignorant. Like, like I remember as a kid seeing like people talk about bottled water. Like, what are they gonna like bottle air next or like? Well, and yeah, they did, but, and they do. But it's like you buy Arrowhead water from like the desert in California and ship it to. All right, well, that's all for the reviews. Um, better luck next time, Josh, on guessing, though I made it pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I was just I, I was just going to say thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, this, was, this was a lot of fun to discuss. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you could join us. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for your insights. But do you have anything you want to plug or anything? Like, Yeah, you got any projects or Instagrams or whatever? I want to plug Emily Dickinson. I think that everyone needs to read more Emily Dickinson. I think that the biggest thing missing from our lives in America right now is Emily Dickinson. Okay. I'll get so, on that. A big, a big plug for Emily. Follow her on Instagram. <laughs> follow her on Facebook. Or just buy a book of her poems and sit with yourself in the evening and sip some tea and just delight in her verbosity. Uh, that sounds great. That's awesome. That's a great plug. Uh, yeah, so I'm Chris Perkins. Uh, you can find me at uh, Serial Flakes Media at uh, on Instagram. And uh, we have a Patreon set up that is uh, slash a prime underscore evil. So Great. And I'm Natalie also Bedwards. And you can find me on Instagram at Natalie underscore C-A-E. And as a sign-off, I love to list um, Amazon subsidiaries to boycott as sort of like an anti-advertisers. Um, what was the one that you said earlier that they didn't know that they... Oh, that was Eon. It was like E-E. With... Uh, it's up here in my notes. Hold on. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I didn't mean oh. to interrupt. But, <laughs> but um, that... I wanted to mention in this episode, we'll do different subsidiaries because the list is like freakishly long. But um, (laughs) even seemingly small online book retailers pose as small businesses, but often they've been acquired by Amazon. So um, with no mention of their affiliation. So here's a couple of um, companies that are owned by Amazon. So don't buy books from them, even though they seem like small companies. There's Abe Books, Book Depository, Booktopia, and Bookfinder are some of the ones I found. So 
not to mention hundreds of others that have quietly died under competitive pressure. And also, many of them, many small book retailers still sell on their marketplace, so that's kind of a gray area. But be a responsible buyer and always research the seller before you buy to see who they're owned by and who you're really giving your money to. That's great. <laughs> do I get to do a sign-off? Right. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> My name is Josh DeFreeze, and I think that social media is terrible, so don't look for me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> support that. That's an awesome sign off. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.